Thank you for joining us for this edition of Honest Conversations in Black and White. I'm Virgil Walker. I'm joined by Scott Annual. How you doing, sir? Doing well. Good, good. Man, I'm excited for our conversation today, uh, particularly because this, uh, the person we're going to be interviewing is just a personal, uh, I'm, a, I'm a personal fan of this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, love, love his work, love his writing. I'm learning so much about writing. Of course, Scott, you know, coming here to G3 as you've come over, I feel like my writing has gotten better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the people that I would uh, that I would credit as as someone who's really helped me hone uh, my my writing craft, so to speak, would be our next guest. Uh, so it's with that that brief intro, I'll mention uh, or at least introduce David Schrock. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. Hey man, glad to be here. Let me let me let me give a little bit of your of your background and by way of intro. Uh, David Schrock is the pastor of preaching and theology at Aquan. Uh, uh, Did I say that right? Yeah, everybody misses it. Everybody, it's Akakwan. Akakwan. No yeah, one's I had gonna, it right earlier. You I had it right earlier. I should have <laughs> let you do this. Yeah, at Akakwan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. David is a two-time graduate of the of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he's a founding faculty member and professor of theology at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. And he's the author of Royal Priesthood and Glory of God, along with many other journals, articles, and online essays. And of course, this brand new book uh, that we have in our hot, hot little hands, uh, Dividing the Faithful, How a Little Book on Race Fractured a Movement and Founded, uh, a Movement Rather, Founded on Grace. David, thanks again for joining us, man. We're excited for our conversation today with you. Hey, man. Glad to be here with you guys. Good. Listen. Uh, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, a, I'm a fan, and uh, for a number of different reasons, we met long ago. Uh, at, while you were, were you in Indianapolis at the time when we first met? Yeah, so I've been in uh, Northern Virginia for about eight years, mm-hmm. but uh, we talked about some things with regards to Indianapolis Theological Seminary. So it's easy to kind of blur those two things yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a joy to get to meet you then and get to a chance to know you a little bit. Let's do this for the the audience who does not know you. I want to sure. give you just a few minutes to tell people a little bit more about your background that may not be there in the, uh, you know, in, in what I just read. Just let let folks know who you are and what you're involved in. Yeah, uh, came to faith in Christ, uh, end of high school. Uh, I was deeply involved with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ in college. Uh, was a part of a discipleship ministry in uh, two years in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then went to Southern Seminary. Uh, at Southern, did my MDiv and PhD there, met my wife, uh, had our first son in Louisville, Kentucky, and then moved to Southern Indiana, where I began to pastor and uh, finished a PhD in systematic theology, uh, looking at the priesthood and how that relates to definite atonement. And so that book that you mentioned earlier was certainly part of the fruit of that. And right now working on another book on definite atonement. Mm-hmm. So theology and the local church have certainly been at the forefront of of my life for the last 20 years. Yeah. And uh, then this book is certainly something that came out of that most recently. Yeah. So th- this book really kind of uh, unpacks a, a, a really difficult, challenging issue. And it's it's, it's polemical in, in, in a large respect based upon, you know, you're trying to unpack what 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 divided the faithful and, and the book uh, divided by faith. I, I want to before I get into that, I want to also ask a little bit if you'll tell uh, the our audience a little bit about what you're doing at Christ overall. 
Yeah, so you mentioned just writing. You have written for us a couple of good pieces at Christ Overall, and that's been a joy for us to, to work with you on that and to publish what you've done. And so that's a ministry that really came out of 2020. I think everybody has just had so many questions. What is going on and how the church was, well, in some places faithful, lots of places it seemed to be unfaithful, and just lots of questions that were there. Uh, and so certainly uh, Steve Wellam, Trent Hunter, Brad Green, Ardell Candidate, a few of our elders at our church were just having many conversations and saw the need uh, to really try to interject uh, it's many things that you guys are doing with, with G3, but to kind of elongate some conversations to provide some biblical and theological um, resources that would equip the church to engage with the culture. And so in the fall of 2022, uh, that launched, it's a website uh, that takes one issue per month. And so, for instance, one of the things you wrote for us, a couple pieces in the month of July this year was uh, regarding civil rights mm -hmm. and civil wrongs. And looking back at that historically, how that relates to the church today, uh, after that, we did something on Genesis 1 through 11. So just looking at some of the biblical theological challenges that that passage looks at. Uh, last month, uh, we were looking at the issue related to progressive covenantalism, which is something that Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry have kind of outlined there. And so we're trying to do Bible, theology, culture, church, uh, kind of one step at a time, instead of just doing the hot takes on Twitter, trying to slow that down, think through those things. And that's what we've been doing for the last uh, about a year. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I really admire uh, your approach to things, the thoughtfulness uh, to which you address things, and really the time that you take in those lengthier articles and even the podcasts that are associated with them uh, to really unpack some ideas. It's really good stuff. Yeah. So. yeah. And we, we actually partnered with you, with Christ Overall, uh, on the release of this book. That was a, a neat thing for us to do. You guys are talking about it, released it mm -hmm. to your subscribers in a PDF format, and then G3 yeah. Press, uh, we got to publish the, the print copy. And uh, so it's been good for our ministries to be able to work together in that fashion as well. Yeah, no, it's been a joy for us as well. Well, tell us tell us a little bit about the book, the impetus for the book. I, I know what that is, but our audience does not. Uh, talk to us about what, what caused you to write it. Uh, give a little bit of background as to it, as to the need for this to be written. Kind of unpack that for us. Yeah, so the, the beginning of the book lays out a bit of that history. Mm -hmm. um, but for me personally, I think it was 2018 or so, really kind of being on the other side of where this book goes. Uh, so was encouraged to read the the book that's in kind of the sites of this book, Divided by Faith, mm -hmm. uh, which is a book that introduces, I would say, critical race theory without the language of critical race theory uh, to many in the evangelical world. Uh, and so I certainly bought that hook, line, and sinker. Many of uh, my friends and kind of mentors in the faith passed this book along. I mentioned that uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, through ministries like the the gathering of Together for the Gospel, this was something that was put forward there. I mentioned in the book the, the message that David Platt gave mm -hmm. there, which in many ways was an exposition of Divided by Faith. Uh, and I think that caused not only many um, conversations, but much confusion related to this, because there's a great impetus on saying, you know, we need to strive for diversity. Uh, and there's a place for that in Scripture, there's a place for the church. But the way it was doing that was using tools, was using ideas that came from um, sociology and what we now know as critical race theory. This book was written in 2000. So it's kind of strange to, to have a response to this book some 23 years later. Uh, but it's because it really gained a second life from about 2014 to about 2018, 2020, as is being passed around in the Reformed evangelical circles. Obviously, 
you know, the social justice statement that Josh Bice and you guys put forward from Dallas, I think was responding to this, mm-hmm. uh, responding to kind of that whole movement. Um, but I saw that and began to see some of the problems with that as I just learned a little bit more history, I was reading some other articles that would respond against this and saw the need to be able to speak to it in a very precise way of where the problems are in this book. Yeah, it seems like that that book w- was sort of the gateway for a lot of Reformed Christians into buying into, like you said, what later would be specifically identified as critical race theory and all all of the all all that came with it. Uh, this this book was being passed around. Why why do you think that was? What what was it about that book that caused otherwise good men, otherwise trusted men? Uh, who you know are reformed, trust the sufficiency of Scripture. What was it about that book, do you think, that caused them to start recommending it and passing it around? Was there anything in particular? Yeah, so maybe a couple things there. I, I think, one, there's always been a sense of desire for racial reconciliation. So the book actually talks about kind of the Promise Keepers movement mm-hmm. that I think seeded into kind of evangelical spaces, a desire for uh, black and white um, relations in particular, friendships and you know groups to be able to be reconciled. And certainly the history of our country uh, plays a part in that. And in the book, the second chapter really dives into the history of the church in America, going back to slavery, Jim Crow, up until 1964. And so I would say this, that if someone doesn't know that history, that this book does introduce that history, Mm. and that's an important history to know. But the way that it does it is to set it in a context without really good, um, ironically, analytical tools uh, to think (laughs) through how that history works itself out. And then the problem as well is it stops in 1964 uh, without thinking about some of the ways that the war on poverty and the Great Society, some of those movements actually did even more damage uh, to urban centers in America. So at a positive level, there's some history that the book introduces. Very negatively, though, the way that it does so is incredibly unhelpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate everything that you just laid out in that, and I, I completely agree. I think a lot of what what is assumed about the book, dividing by, divided by faith, is is has everything to do with a historical narrative that's brought into our current day. And what what the reader comes away with is not only has nothing changed, but things have actually gotten worse. And the reason mm-hmm. why they're worse is because now they're more covert than overt. And so right. what you what you come away with having read the book is the idea that, man, this idea of systemic racism is everywhere. Uh, the, the need for a, 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 a analytical tool like critical race theory uh, is something that's, that's germane. While, while the book doesn't lay all of those pieces out, given what was happening in culture, George Floyd, uh, all of the issues related to social justice, this new uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things kind of coalesced so that by 2020, um, reformed circles felt like they were on the cutting edge Mm -hmm. by reading this book, again, that you mentioned, that was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's important to see in the book, I think it's page nine of Divided by Faith, right, introduces a definition of racialization that comes from someone by the name of Eduardo Benia Silva. Mm -hmm. Now, that name may not mean anything to anyone, um, but he has been a leading sociologist for the last number of decades, uh, and he's the one who has come to write a book, I think it's about six or seven editions now, of racism without 
without racists, mm-hmm. right? And so he's right. addressing the structural racism mm-hmm. in our country. Right. So he's the one who provides the definition for divided by faith. And so he's at the leading edge of critical race theory today. And so even though that language is not used in the book, the seeds are there. And so right. I've likened divided by faith to something of a gateway drug to critical race theory, which I think we've seen the fruit of since 2020. Right. say this is this is not good. I mean, we've seen in the last week the way that uh, Black Lives Matter as an institution has, you know, supported and celebrated what Hamas has done. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, the you know, all, all the veneer is gone now, and it was for some time. Um, but I think this book interjected those things and prepared the way for for worse kind of affiliations with regards to those movements and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the sad irony is, and and this is sort of an, a running thesis in the book, and it's even captured in your title, which I think is fantastic, is that that book, which ostensibly was seeking to uh, to correct division, actually served to cause division within the church. Can you t- talk a little bit about that? What are you mentioned just a moment ago? Some of the effects on this side of the uh, of the book and its impact. What are some other ways that that book really served to actually divide the faithful among evangelical brethren? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think uh, what Virgil just mentioned there is that it seeded the fact that there's racism everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And you can't see it. It almost just has to be assumed. And, and the book certainly does bring out the fact that what was once overt has now been covert. And so now you're kind of training people to look under every corner to be able mm-hmm. to see where it is. And some people who buy that are now seeing the structures that are there that maybe they are left over from vestiges of you know uh, partiality from the past. Um, but it's giving terms, it's giving language that is unhelpful and not everyone agrees with it. And certainly the other part of the book is that the theology of the book, it has a theology, it denies that it's using theology, but it has a theology. Mm-hmm. And the people that it is turning to are those from a very clear leftward and liberal background, mm-hmm. right? And so those who are reformed in their soteriology, those who are reformed in their understanding of scripture, ironically, are turning to, you know, um, a Michael Emerson and a Christian Smith, one who has become a Catholic and the other who is a leading uh, dean at uh, a school in Chicago that is clearly anything but orthodox. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, kind of looking under every every rug, every rock for for racism. You know, you mentioned earlier the the social justice statement that Josh Bice really spearheaded and the impact of that. I think that gave a lot of a lot of just normal everyday run, you know, run of the mill, I don't mean that as a as a, you know, degradation, but just run of the mill Christians who are now being told you're racists even though you don't know it largely because of books like this or leaders in their lives who are reading books like that, telling them that. So now here is a statement saying, no, that's not correct, sort of a breath of fresh air that uh, that was really a help to people. And I think this book that you've written is is just another piece in that that we pray will continue to be a help to people who are not racist. They are they they view all people alike, all people made in the image of God. And yet now for many, many years, certainly by by leftists and now even by Christians they used to trust, they're being told that they're racist. 
uh, that what else would that do but divide good Christian believing people? Yeah, I, I, I've got some things I want to I want to run by you and and yeah. re- regarding the book, you mentioned uh, you know some of the some of the people that after you read uh, you know. Uh, divided by faith that that folks would be inclined to listen to. I, I what I found interesting was in in academic circles. In fact, even at uh, even at Southern Seminary, people began to appeal to men like James Cone uh, as as a thought leader uh, for yeah. this. So they would to the point you made that you know the book would be a gateway drug. Only to mm-hmm. only to find some people in some very leftward uh, ideas like those presented by 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 Cone. Uh, can you kind of speak to a little bit of, of why that trajectory happened or what took place as you kind of saw this thing unfolding? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was happening, and this happened in multiple places, I mentioned the book as well, is that you have this idea that we need to read uh, people of color, we need to read black authors. Mm -hmm. uh, And so James Cone is a natural person to do that. Uh, I mean, it's ironic that I I taught hermeneutics uh, at Southern Seminary. um, And uh, there was a student in that class, if I were to mention his name, everybody would know exactly who he is, because he's certainly an outspoken uh, guy on Twitter uh, for, you you know, uh, racial trauma, if you if you will. Uh, and, you know, he was, you know, saying, you know, some things to the fact that, you know, I'm wanting to look at some of the different uh, hermeneutical pieces that come from people of color. And I sent an email back and said, tell me who those are. Like, who, who are you pointing to there? He never responded. Like, that was a, a very sincere question. And uh, so I think there's something valid to that point. So t- taking that in two directions, one is that the early church certainly has people from all over the continent of Africa, Right. So Thomas Oden has certainly showed the way in which there are the roots of even the councils and the university system of Europe and the rest is going back to Africa, uh, not just northern Africa, but other places as well. So he's making some of those claims that are there. The other thing is that, you know, if you take that seriously, it may lead you to men like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams Mm -hmm. and others like that, who uh, I did begin to read. And helped were helped in incredible ways. Mm-hmm. Now, again, um, I think Walter Williams was a believer. I don't believe that Thomas Sowell was, mm-hmm. but they see the world very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in reading those two authors, it helped me to be able to realize, oh, what is the black voice that is being laid out here and divided by faith? It's actually not monolithic. Right. right? There are actually multiple perspectives. And the issue here is not skin color. The issue is ideologies. Absolutely. It's different, you know, theologies, it's different sociologies. It's it's a conflict of, of visions, to use soul's language. Yep. Yep. It's not just that, you know, we have a black idea and a white idea. Uh, there's far more to it than that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the one of the helpful things you identify in in critiquing that book is just the the really the pragmatic solutions that it that it that it provides. And and that may be one of the uh, one of the reasons many evangelicals just adopted it because pragmatism just runs through many, many churches. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how how the solution or solutions that are offered in that book really just stem to mm-hmm. pragmatic uh, approaches. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I'm not sure the book has a tremendous amount of of solutions, mm-hmm. right? Some of it is, you know, economics. Mm-hmm. 
right? So we need to recognize that the, the main problem here, the disparities equal discrimination. So we need to throw money at, at the situation that is theirs. That might be one thing. And certainly in books that come out later, like The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby and others, they're going to have, you know, ecclesial reparations mm -hmm. and then kind of governmental reparations and all the rest. So that might be some solutions that are there. And I think some schools even picked that up and, and did run with that. But mm -hmm. I would argue that one of the things that happens from the book is to say, look, the the solutions are not great, but what they recognize is, uh, and they recognize some problems that are there. And so we need to see those things. And I would simply just offer, no, actually the diagnoses, what they're actually looking at is flawed from the beginning. So they identify the problem wrongly. Mm -hmm. And so any solutions that they do give, yes, it moves towards pragmatism, but even the solutions are wrongly framed because they get the wrong problem. Yeah. I, I love what you did in, in, in your book, Dividing the Faithful, in that you lay out 47 problems with divided by faith, 47 problems. My guess is you probably could have found 50, at least a round up to 50. But the thought crossed my mind and I, I just have to admit I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the reason I, I love it is because each chapter is kind of laid out as to what the problem is. And you kind of unpack, you know, a number of different things. You know, for example, in chapter one, uh, divided by faith redefines racism. And then you unpack that during that section. Chapter two, divided by faith writes a truncated history that and then you lay out some of those those things. Uh, chapter three, divided by faith demands a progressive ethic. Uh, and you kind of unpack that. I mean, you go through each one of these uh, in each chapter and kind of it c categorize a number of the different issues in each section uh, and, and deal with these. T talk about the structure of what you were doing or what, what your thought process or pattern was for putting things together in that way. Yeah. So again, I think part of it was, again, hearing this narrative that, yeah, the solutions aren't great for this book, mm -hmm. um, but you need to read it because it does identify some things we need to know about. And so the argument that I'm trying to show is that from beginning to end, from front to back, like there's nothing that is good here, mm -hmm. right? Yes, it introduces some things that we need to know in our history. That That's sure. And certainly there's ways in which we need to think about these issues, but because of the lens by which they're using this definition that is wrongly employing racialization, which is not a biblical idea, nor is there, I mean, so understandably they're, they're sociologists, um, but they're treading on the ground where exegesis and theology and church history matter mm -hmm. uh, and should be informing these things. And so I'm just trying to show that. Uh, I've had a couple people who have said, okay, well, I'll read your book. I need to read the other book. And I'm not saying don't go read the other book, right. uh, but I am saying that what I'm trying to do in the book is to give as fair a summary of what is in each chapter mm -hmm. and then to show how there are multiple problems with that. Uh, and so if somebody has read the book and been encouraged by it, maybe it's been 10 years since they've read it, right. they could pick up this book and be refreshed pretty quickly on what was there and what the problems are that perhaps they didn't see as they were reading through it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that's good stuff. You know, one, one of the things that has that concerned me all and still does with the, the, the influence of critical race theory and all of this is that churches end up losing the mission that Christ has given to her. Mm -hmm. And you, you address that in here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how how has this push toward trying to deal with quote unquote systemic racism or the divisions within church that may or not be actually be there? How has that actually led to uh, a losing of the very mission that we have been given by Jesus Christ Himself? 
Yeah, so just to define my understanding of the mission of the church, I'm thinking of the corporate body is to go make disciples, mm. right? To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to teach them all that Christ has commanded. So the mission of the gathered church is to be preaching the gospel so that people would be saved from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of hell, and be brought into the kingdom of beloved Son and Jesus Christ, and that they are to be baptized and brought into that community. That's the mission of the church. What happens in this book and what happens with kind of the whole social justice movement is to say that the mission of the church is to make the world around them a better place, mm -hmm. right? It is to turn Christians into advocacy advocates who are then going out and trying to improve the conditions of the world. Instead of recognizing that the fallen world in which we are in, the first commission or the great commission is to call people out from that world and to Christ. That doesn't deny the fact that we should then be training them to see, to see everything that Christ has taught in the word of God. Right. And then as the church scatters, that we're bringing light into the world. And if you can have impact through your vocations in the place that you are, do that. Mm -hmm. If you find that there is ethnic partiality in your workplace, then you should be a part of being a solution for that. Mm -hmm. But that's very different than saying that the mission of the church is to go and to do all of that, right. uh, because right. that co-ops the church into something other than what it God designed it to be. Yeah. The other the other thing that it does is it 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 puts in the mind of of many who are taken by kind of the worldly narrative about race and racism. And and it puts them in the in the in the awkward position of having this 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 expectation of church that's not realistic. Uh, mm -hmm. So church needs to appeal to me and my black culture. Uh, they need to appeal to me and and my ideas about politics. And so, so you know, the, the whole idea is kind of turned up, upside down. Rather than the church being for God and honoring him, it's about me mm -hmm. uh, and my felt needs being met. Uh, and if they're not, then I'm going to take all of my, my toys and, and find another church that does those, those, you know, that does that kind of thing. I think that's incredibly problematic I want you to I want you to speak a little bit to what you hope your your book will accomplish or what you were hoping by putting this together and and then again uh, Christ overall published this in, in its form we did as well what is your hope for the work that you've put together here yeah I mean my hope is that it would bear good fruit but the way that it bears good fruit I think is to be a weeding project right? If divided by faith was sowing seeds into the church or sowing seeds into the hearts of believers in the church, even pastors, mm -hmm. they say, actually, those are not good seeds. And what has grown out of that, I think we've seen more clearly than ever in the last few years, has produced poisonous fruit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm hoping that some men will repent. Uh, some will turn back and say, you know what, I, I didn't get this right. You know, there's a kind of empathy. I mean, we've heard the language of the sin of empathy. I think there is a, a culture where, you know, we want to be empathetic. And if there are those who have been, you know, displaced or discriminated against, we want to care for that. Mm -hmm. But we need to make sure that we understand what the problems are from scripture, a biblical analysis of that, and then to address it with, with biblical solutions. That's what this book doesn't do. And so hopefully it points people back towards better resources, back towards the Bible itself, uh, so that good fruit can be born uh, in the church and beyond. Yeah, that's that's good. So let me let me just ask you, you know, what would you say to a pastor who perhaps like you even said you did back in the day, got the book, bought it hook line and sink, sinker, maybe started to communicate some of these things to his people. But then since then, perhaps hopefully after reading your book or maybe some other influences has recognized that it was an error. What does he need to do? Yeah, I mean, if it's a preaching pastor, I mean, our vocation is to preach the word of God. Mm. 
right? And and there may be a place to to preach more clearly what Scripture says about these things and to prioritize the centrality of Christ. Mm. Uh, it could be that they need to go back and say, you know what, that sermon series I did or that sermon that I did was not helpful. Might begin with their elders and talking through, okay, uh, what good, bad, or indifferent happened by by doing that. I mean, it's ironic to me that so. You know, I live in a very, um, you know, multi-ethnic place in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Uh, and over the last number of years, we have simply done two things. We have preached the gospel as clearly as we possibly can and be as hospitable to ever the Lord brings us. And our church today looks more like our neighbors around us than it did five, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's not by because we've done some sort of programmatic change to say yeah. we're going to appeal to diversity around us. Although we have been encouraged to do that by some, a book like this would certainly encourage that. Uh, but to say, we're going to hold up Christ. And as we hold up Christ, we trust that he will gather all men to himself. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe one other piece of that is maybe going back to a passage like Roman, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Revelations 5 and 7 is a picture of the nations who are gathered around the throne of God. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think that book has, or that that passage has been turned into a command to say, right. you must make right. your church mm-hmm. look like this. Right. And of course, in, you know, monocultural, monoethnic, you know, um, you know, whether it's a, a rural part of America or, you know, a rural part of Africa uh, where there's only one ethnicity that is there, it's an impossibility. Right. Uh, in places where we live today, where there are more eth- ethnicities around, it's still not the main command. The main command is to preach Christ right? Uh, and to trust that our Heavenly Father knows how to gather his children together. And I would say this, in some ways, the church 100 years ago in America was pre selecting their siblings in the church by saying, if they look a certain color, we're not going to have them, right. right? That was sinful. That was wrong. But we've gone in the other direction and say, we want to pre-select our siblings again, if, as long as they look in, you know, multi-shades of melanin. right? And that's wrong too, right? right? We need to preach Christ. We need to trust right. that our Heavenly Father knows how to adopt His children into the family of God through the preaching of the gospel. And that needs to be the main thing. Yeah. And if any pastor or church has moved away from that, they need to repent of that. Absolutely, man. That's that's really good. I, you know, I th- I think about what what you mentioned in Revelation, and and you know what we're reading there is is the re- is the result, right? What we're reading there is 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 what God has done, not what we have done by some form of of manipulative, you know, sociocultural, uh, you know, processes, affirmative action. right? Affirmative action, <laughs> right? Right? Type type of deal to, to to ensure that these kinds of things are happening. It does not surprise me that in Occoquan, at Occoquan Bible Church, there's diversity. I mean, you have to you have to be able to say the name in order to be able to show up there, right? So that 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 should be that should be of of, of no surprise, uh, David. As we kind of begin to, to to wrap things up with with you, and and again, I'm I'm so excited about what you're doing, about what you know what this book represents. Uh, I, I want everyone to get their copy of this book. I, I'll go further than you did as regard to as it, as it relates to your uh, your goals. I hope as, as many places, and you know, you know the work that I've done with with just thinking, and even here with G three yeah. uh, on this particular subject. The many many churches that we've been to and talked to. Uh, I, I think this book is incredibly helpful as a resource uh, for pastors who don't have the time, who are who are faithfully preaching the word, 
and do not have the time to do all of the research uh, in these various directions about social justice or critical race theory or, or, or trace the, the, the line from which all of it occurred. They could grab your book, have it as a resource and unpack and understand everything that's taking place, know how to address the particular issues as they're raised, not only for uh, div- divided by faith, but also uh, for issues that, that come up on a periodic basis over and over and over again. We'll see these same issues uh, rear their ugly heads uh, in, in an effort to tear apart the body of Christ. And so I, I hope that every pastor, uh, every lay person who cares about this subject matter uh, would pick up your book, grab it and, and, uh, and, and make, it, make it available to them. Any last words that you have as we kind of wrap things up, things that we didn't cover or something you'd want other folks to know about you or the book or anything else? Yeah, brother. I mean, I'm not sure I can add much more to what you just said there, mm-hmm. uh, other than to say that, brother, you've been helpful for me as well. The work that you and, uh, and Daryl have done with Just Thinking certainly played a role in thinking through that. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, and I think in this day when we can be pulled in all sorts of different directions and people in the pews uh, want to accumulate for themselves, you know, different doctrines for their itching ears. I mean, we need to be unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of what the mission of the church is and not to take on more than what Christ has given to us in his word. Mm, that's Amen. good stuff. Yep. F- finally, David, let folks know where they could find more of you, more of your writing. I know we mentioned Christ overall. Any other places that you'd point people to, social media or, or, or other spaces uh, where you connect so- with them? My my blog, davidschrock.com, is there. It has a lot from a number of years ago. It's a little bit dormant right now because of all the other work going on in Christ overall. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's there. And then uh, on Twitter as well, David Schrock. Good deal. Good deal. Well, thanks for thanks for taking the time out uh, and talking to us. Scott, anything yeah. you want no, to thanks add? Thanks so much, David. Thanks for writing this. We pray that this will be a great tool in the hands of many believers. Well, thank you, brother. I really appreciate all the help you've given. Thanks for joining us.